Hello and welcome to episode 83 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. This is Ben Olson in Washington, D.C. and Nathan Fox in Los Angeles. How's it going, Nathan? Uh, it's good. Seems like we've got our technical difficulties sorted out. We're having a little bit of problems getting this thing going this morning. But uh, yeah, we are, we are, looks like we are officially up and running here. So I'm happy. Let's, let's do this. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> I think for the fourth time, I heard that it was raining there. Oh my God. It's, yeah, LA has been raining for like two months. So all of the hysteria about the drought is uh, temporarily going to be on hold. I mean, obviously that just comes back, you know, we get a shit ton of rain now and then it'll be like all we need is one dry year and then they'll be talking about the drought again. I mean, the truth is humans should just like not be living here, you know, without <laughs> there's just not enough water <laughs> Yeah, in uh, Southern California, coastal Southern California. There's not nearly enough water. So not cer- certainly not enough to support the 10 million people or whatever that live down here. Huh. Now, do you guys get your water from like Colorado? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think we get, if you ever want to like blow your own mind, you should check out google earth like satellite imagery of the border between like san diego and tijuana okay it's nuts how green it is in the united states and then how brown it is in mexico and it it seems as if what happened is we just took every last drop of water you know in that watershed and just kept it all in the united states there's some really i read a really good book um called cadillac desert Okay. Which was all about the giant water development projects in the Southwest, um, including some really interesting stuff that they did in California. I mean, they, they actually like reversed the course of rivers and just it's outrageous the kinds of giant, you know, billion dollar projects that they've done here in order to support uh, the crazy growth of L.A. especially. Huh. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Um. Well, I wonder if this has anything to do with the El Nino, the rain. I I suppose. I mean, I think other people would say that it has to do just with climate change generally, that you're just getting all sorts of bizarre weather patterns coming. Sure. But yeah. I think it's probably impossible to really attribute causation, right? We've, we've got, <laughs> I mean, there's going to be weird shit. So then it's hard to tell what's what's really causing what. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have some exciting stuff on the agenda today. We have uh, some questions, uh, of course, as always, uh, covering things from have we ever cried about the LSAT before? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Have we ever missed questions? No, never. Of course not. Mm -hmm. Uh, What do we do about or what do we suggest about post-test anxiety? Uh, Of course, the February 2017 LSAT just happened on Saturday. So we have some updates on that. And then I guess you did an interview with uh, a consumer bankruptcy attorney. Yeah. Aliza Ganuni, who I met at some business networking thing here in LA. And uh, she, I just thought her story was interesting because she's a solo practitioner. She went to a smaller law school. She went to Loyola law school Hmm. and she practices consumer bankruptcy, including it's not bankruptcy, but restructuring debt for people who have crazy amounts of student debt. <laughs> so I thought it was sort of double appropriate for our audience to hear you know, not only about a successful practicing attorney, but also a little bit of the horror stories behind 
uh, people who have crazy amounts of student loans. Sure. Yeah. Know what? Know what lies ahead. Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. Good. Well, I think we'll also have time at the end for at least one or two questions from the June yeah. 2007 LSAT. So that'll be good. Hey, I, I want to uh, recommend a game um, that I thought you would like, Ben. I played it last night with my friends in Toronto. We played online. But have you heard of this game called Keep Talking and Nobody Explodes? No, not at all. I think you might love it with your kids. It's uh, it's super fun. It's a very simple, kind of simple thing, but it's it's difficult and it's uh, stressful and it's it's fun, I think. Okay. The way it works is uh, one person is diffusing a bomb and it's on a computer and so it, you're one person is going to be looking at a computer screen mm-hmm. and the computer screen has the bomb on it and the bomb has like numbers and dials and switches and wires and all sorts of stuff on it. Yeah. And then the other people are on like the telephone. Okay. You can do it sitting around the table, but only one person looks at the bomb mm-hmm. and then everyone else is an expert and the experts all have this manual <laughs> and the manual is like 30 pages <laughs> and really intentionally poorly written okay (laughs) and it's like it's like lsat logic game to try to figure this shit out yeah so the the, there's a timer by the way the bomb is like ticking down Mm -hmm. from say five minutes it's a pretty fast-paced game okay but the bomb's ticking down and there are puzzles basically the puzzles on the bomb so one of them will be wires it's like okay we have wires and only one person looks at the bomb. So the person looking at the bomb has to be talking to the experts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the experts have the manual, but the person with the bomb does not have the manual. Yeah. So <laughs> so it's like, okay, we have wires. And then it's like, whoever has the manual, you know, look up the page where the wires and they go, okay, tell me, tell me about the wires. You know, uh, okay. Are there any yellow wires? Yeah. <laughs> no, there's no yellow wires. Okay. What's the last digit of the serial number on the bomb? Seven. Okay. It's odd. Okay. Cut that wire. <laughs> Or don't cut the wire. And then there's other puzzles too. There's uh, there'll be a button, and it's like whether or not you press the button, or if you press and release the button, or if you press and hold the button, and then some other light comes on, and then you do something else. But you have to. It's very fast paced, and you have to communicate with each other in order to make it happen. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I could see it being that being pretty hilarious. There's uh, easier ones. You start, you know, you can definitely start with some easier ones. Sure. So, and then they get harder and harder to where you just can't do it at all. Did you blow up or did you win? Oh, we blew up several times, but we also successfully diffused some. So it was, it was pretty fun. So wait, when it blows up, it's like you cut the wrong wire and it blows up, or you just or you run out of time. Yeah. Yeah. If you if you make too many mistakes, or if you cut the, or if you, or if you just run out of time, then just the bomb explodes and everybody dies. Cool. Yeah, I'll check it out. It's like, what yeah, was it? Don't talk or it's called Keep Talking. Oh, keep talking. Mm-hmm. And nobody explodes. The uh, manual is freely available on the website, so if you just Google that, you'll you'll find the website for the game, and you can actually look at the the whole manual is there. It's just like a PDF. Yeah. And you, I, <laughs> I ended up printing it out, and I've got this big table here that I use for my classes. And I ended up having like the 30 pages of the manual just spread out everywhere on the on the table. And I'm like, I'm writing on the pages to try to solve these puzzles as we were doing it. And I don't know, it's just it was silly and 
and hilarious, but it struck me this morning. I was like, oh man, Ben with his kids, I bet might, might get a kick out of it. Cause it really is, there really is some, uh, LSAT ish kind of stuff on it. Huh? Uh, this sounds like a good excuse for people to, um, put off LSAT studying too, right? Like they could say, Hey, there's games on there basically. Oh, it'd be a great study break. I mean, for sure. Yeah. Cause it's cool. Cause you could pick it up and just play it almost immediately. Mm-hmm. Because part of navigating the manual is part of the fun, too. So you really could just give, you know, print out three copies of the manual, give it to your friends, and then you have the game installed on your computer and you just start with a bomb, you know, and just and just be like, okay, here we go. (laughs) And then 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 your friends would have to be digging through this crazy manual trying to figure out, you know, hey, I've got this big red button. Yeah. (laughs) What do I do with it? (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. Well, cool. Uh, yeah, we'll check it out for sure and report back. Oh, I would love to hear it if you do. If you play, I would love to hear how it, how it went. Yeah, yeah, cool. Uh, so this first one is from Matt in DC, and he says, "Here are my thinking LSAT questions under the alias of Matt from DC." And the first question is: Has the LSAT ever made you cry? It's made me cry, both tears of joy and tears of sadness. Nathan will probably make probably make fun of me for that. If the LSAT has ever made you cry, why? What happened? How did you move on past those tears? <laughs> okay. So, has the LSAT ever made you cry? Absolutely not. No. <laughs> not not even not not even close. How about you? Uh, no, I don't think I've ever cried. Neither toy. Uh, toys not toys you're making me think of toys now but uh tears of joy and tears of sadness i don't know that i've had that much emotion associated with the test although i do remember one time i don't actually remember the score i got or where i was scoring before this but this was before i took the official test and it was pretty close to the official test and my score dropped 11 points that's all i remember so i don't remember what (laughs) number i had in my head and why i thought that that was my score and then whatever score i got on this test was supposedly 11 points lower than that but i do remember that 11 and thinking like apparently i can't do this you know it's a very like this is all a wasted effort i'm horrible at this and that was my initial reaction, which was, you know, in hindsight, um, a little silly, given the fact that I obviously had other tests that were at least apparently or somewhere near 11 points higher than that and uh, closer to my norm. But <laughs> yeah, at the time, I was like, forget it. This is over. You know, it's kind of funny how you can put a bunch of weight on one test. So how did you move on and past those tears? I mean, you didn't have any tears, but how did you move on past that 11 point stomach punch? I I think the next day my feelings were different, you know, it's sort of like, well, okay, guess better take another test at some point and I don't think I took one right away, thankfully. I do know a lot of people who do that, who take one test, it doesn't go well, and then they're like taking another test that afternoon and you're like, well, that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, at at best, that's just pulling the lever on the slot machine again and again and again. Yeah. You know, just seeing what random number comes out of the stupid thing. I I hate that. But yeah, I mean, what would we recommend? Probably recommend the exact opposite of that, right? Mm-hmm. Take a break, maybe get some distance away from it. 
Yeah, and I always tell people to, in some ways, dig into it too, right? Like, well, which questions did you get wrong and why? I mean, there's got to be a reason. And I, as a teacher, would be very curious which ones you did get wrong and whether you think that they're hard now. I mean, oftentimes we think they're easier after the test anyway, but when you look at them and let's say you missed question three, it's like, well, hmm, that's a little strange. Maybe you were rushing and maybe this whole thing is just a sham or maybe you were tired. I mean, some people don't like to, I think, come up with excuses. You know, they say, well, I stayed up late the night before drinking and I woke up early and I wasn't feeling good and then I decided to take it. And it's like, well, yeah, I don't know how much we can attribute your failure to that, but you can't just dismiss that outright and you probably shouldn't have taken a test when you felt bad. Yeah, that's a good point. So, yeah. Matt from DC's second Wait, question. I, oh, yeah, go ahead. I, I guess, well, I, I want to talk about, it's not the LSAT making me cry, but I do, and it happened to me just the other day in San Francisco. This is going to sound really cheesy. People aren't going to even believe this, but I sometimes when I'm teaching, I um, I will sometimes get slightly choked up when I start thinking about what a great uh, gig I have and because <laughs> I, I, I will uh, regularly thank my classes, you know, to just take a moment to say thank you for supporting my little business and I, I just really have the greatest gig in the world and I'm so grateful to be here and I wouldn't be able to do this if it weren't for you, you know, taking a chance on my business and I I, I do... Uh, every once in a while, I get a little bit uh, choked up when I'm making that little speech because I really do have I have it so so good. And uh, every once in a while, the gratitude is uh, it's a little bit overwhelming. So I guess that's as close as I can come to saying that the LSAT ever makes me cry. So there are some tears of joy there for you. I guess, yeah, I, I, that would certainly be tears of joy. Yeah, it's not, it's not uh, like the LSAT itself giving me those tears of joy, but uh, just the uh, being so appreciative of how how much I love my job. Yeah, yeah. So the soft side of Nathan comes out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I also got a little misty during La La Land and a lot of other movies too. So, <laughs> so your discussion reminded me of John Boehner. Remember that guy? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why did he cry? What was his thing again? He cried all the time. That was a thing. <laughs> he was the orange guy, right? Yeah. Yeah, he was pretty tan. Yeah, is that if that's what you mean. Well, in the fake tan, orange. Yeah, yeah. It was like, yeah, definitely something. <laughs> I don't know. It seemed fake, but. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So you, maybe you <laughs> maybe you should interview him. He's, he's in yeah. the law, right? You guys yeah, have a, totally. a misty eye connection. So uh, question number two is how do you recommend people deal with post-test anxiety? So Matt, he just took the February LSAT, and I guess he might be feeling a little anxious. I don't I don't know, just hang tight. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, I fun. remember that three weeks does suck. I remember it being just uncomfortable while you're waiting. You know, mm-hmm. it's your whole entire future wrapped up into this one number and you're just waiting for it to come out. I mean, I would recommend the best time traveling method that I know of is alcohol. 
it's the best. It's uh, if you want to make time pass, definitely drink <laughs> because <laughs> if you want if you want it to be tomorrow, just start drinking right now, and the next thing you know, it'll be tomorrow. Do it. So <laughs> that's my recommendation. Thanks, thanks. That's good. Uh, are we gonna have to put like a Surgeon General's warning on this podcast? <laughs> we already have the explicit tag, but yeah, we might also need like this is bad for your health. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so one thing that's worked for me lately is just remembering that nothing actually matters. Mm. I mean, <laughs> sometimes I say this in class and people are like, what? Huh? The futility of the entire human human existence. Yeah, like I kind of wonder about, you know, sometimes I when I'm just hanging out there thinking about random stuff and I think, you know what? In 50 some odd years, if not sooner, I'm going to be dead. And you know, you'd like to think that your family or your children or something would, would care about you. And they probably do. They would think about you occasionally for a little while. But after they die, you know, your your grandkids don't really know who you are and other people don't really know. Who, I mean, it doesn't take very long. And then you're pretty much just a forgotten uh, nobody who is part of a billion some odd people on this planet. Uh, I'm not saying that being remembered is actually even that relevant. Think about people who are remembered. They're dead. So do they care? I just, I don't know. I mean, sometimes I kind of get like, uh, what's, you know, does anything matter? I don't know that anything actually matters. Wow. Is that nihilism? Is that what we're talking about? I don't know. I mean, it sounds really depressing, but it's not. It doesn't, I don't feel bad about it at all. It's just kind of like, well, hmm. Okay, uh, next email. Let's see here. <laughs> yeah, the extinction of the human race is always a thing to remember. You know, like when that happens, none of your most embarrassing moments are ever going to matter again. So, yeah, I, I I feel that. I mean, maybe again to spin that a little more positively, it's sort <laughs> of a similar idea. But uh, you know, how about the whole gratitude thing of just remember how your grandparents busted their ass every day, you know, agricultural laborers. I've said it before on the show, but I mean, my grandparents were like seriously straight out of the grapes of wrath, moving out of the dust bowl to California to find work. And by work, I mean, literally picking peaches. Yeah. Which is some hot, dusty, brutal work, Mm -hmm. backbreaking shit, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm And, to just remember that you're sitting, you're studying the LSAT or you're, you know, you're waiting three weeks for your score to come back and oh boy, it's so stressful. Yeah. Well, at least you're not uh, struggling to survive mm-hmm. and which we're, none of us are that far removed from, from some ancestors who were really struggling. Yeah. So if you think this is tough, I mean, maybe just remember how lucky you are to actually even be here. There you go. Thank you for keeping the show positive. That and the extinction thing. I mean, <laughs> both. I think both of those are totally legitimate. So, yeah. Yeah. So, anyways, Matt, whatever happens, I don't know if it matters. Uh, question number three: <laughs> Did you ever get questions? Oh, do you ever get questions wrong? Uh, yes, certainly. What sorts of questions do you personally find the hardest? What particular sorts of questions were hardest for you when starting out as a young LSAT student? Hmm. There's a lot there. I I would say for myself, um, when I started out, I was most concerned about games 
And so I think I mentioned this before, but all I did was game sections. And so I'd do a 35-minute game section and then uh, take whatever score I got on that and multiply it by four to try to estimate my LSAT score, which is ridiculous. (laughs) Whoops. But one upside to that was it consistently underestimated my score. So I thought I was doing worse than I was. Yeah. Um, But... Yeah, so that was the hardest at first. Um, I'd say today the section I like the least is the reading comprehension because some questions I feel like are sort of, oh, did you see line seven? And the question isn't very hard, but sometimes, I don't know, you miss a word or an idea. and It's kind of, I feel like it's kind of like a gotcha question sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, I missed one a reading comprehension question in class the other night. I mean, that doesn't happen all that often, but it it does happen. Usually, I, this one it kind of pissed me off. I, I I sat there and really tried to figure it out, and I was like, man, I see. I guess I can see why they're saying there's there's a reason to pick this answer. But I was like, but but we have seems like we also have a reason not to pick this answer. And I just, I'm trying to figure out what they're getting at and I can't really figure it out. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I almost sent it to you, Ben, which I now regret not doing because my experience with that sort of thing is usually if I send it to you, then you say like one sentence and then I go, ah, shit, you're right. It totally makes sense now. Most of the time, if I think the question is bad, mm-hmm. I'm I'm wrong. That's how it's turned out over the years. I've realized that, you know, I used to think I'm smarter than the test. And then now every time this happens, I, I get an explanation and from you or from one of my, you know, top students or whatever. And they explain it to me and then I go, oh, duh. Yeah. Okay. I buy it now. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear you. Um, there was one question the other day that I... <laughs> I had a reason for the right answer and I had given that reason in class for a long, long time. And then I was talking to some student about that question and sort of the same time we realized, wait a sec, this one word in the answer choice, I don't know how I'd missed it for (laughs) so long, but this one word in the answer choice made it just you're like, wait a sec, you're now not talking about the same sort of things, which is a very common way to make answers wrong. But for some reason, I had just kept overlooking that. Yeah. And then it's like, yeah, sorry, this is this is not even debatable anymore. This is dead yeah. wrong. And that's the kind of thing we have to find, you know? I'll also get them right for the wrong reason. Like, I'll get it, I'll know what the answer is, and I'll be trying to explain it to the class. And then one of my students will go, well, but what about this? And then it'll be a totally better reason mm-hmm. for <laughs> the right answer. And I'll go, oh, yeah, absolutely. Never mind all that bullshit I was just trying to tell you, because <laughs> this is a much clearer reason why this is the, or, uh, you know, a much clearer reason why this other answer is wrong. Yeah. Is, is this. And it's frequently one of those things where it's like, oh, shit, this one word makes it so that this answer is not even talking about the right population of people or whatever. Mm-hmm. And we have to get rid of that. Mm-hmm. You probably never miss questions on the games. I don't think I ever miss questions on the games anymore. I don't feel like I do. And I, I, I feel yeah. like almost where I'm at with logical reasoning, too. I, I, I don't feel like there's sometimes there's um, I guess I guess there's an equi- there's a question every now and then. But I feel 
much more confident about logical reasoning than reading comp just because it's all right there, you know? Yeah. Like if there's any sort of, hmm, wait, I don't feel great about this answer, there's only three or four sentences you have to look back at and you can find it, you know? You can find yeah. what's wrong with it. So. Yeah. As far as uh, what particular sorts of questions were hardest for me when starting out, yeah, definitely the games. I had to practice the games a lot. But I also missed a ton of, and I see my students do this all the time, especially my top students, they will miss questions that are asking about inferences. Mm -hmm. Which one of the following can be properly inferred? I don't know what the LSAC is thinking by using this language because all they're doing is causing like some of the highest performing students to miss those questions. Yeah. Because... They misinterpret the question. They think, oh, I have to read between the lines here. And that's never what they're looking for on that type of question. That's just a must be true question. Yeah. And they do that especially. So they do that on the logical reasoning. And I'll, it's, I can, <laughs> it's like I am a mind reader now sometimes because I can tell in advance when a student, you know, I, I just know what type of questions certain people are going to be missing, certain people in the room. Mm hmm. I'll, I'll point out like, Hey, this question here, number 17, how it says, which one it can be properly, sorry, it can be inferred from the passage that the author would be most likely to agree with which one of the following. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to be like, some of the top students in here probably missed this because you thought that we were supposed to be quote inferring something or that we were supposed to be finding something that the author would be most likely to agree with. Yeah. But it's not about what they would say. It's about what they did say. Mm -hmm. And we're not supposed to be reading between the lines. We're not supposed to be, you know, going the next step. All we're supposed to be doing here is demonstrating that we read the passage and that we understood it. Yep. And so we're supposed to be picking boring, obvious, conservative, must be true answers. Yeah. And that's a funny one for me because I... There, I do feel like the LSAC maybe doesn't really know what they're doing. Like they don't, or they haven't thought about it. Mm. They they certainly haven't thought about it the way we've thought about it mm -hmm. from teaching it every day for 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they're writing the test, but they're, they got other stuff on their mind too. And so I don't know what they're doing there. They're, they're trying to make the test tricky. I've always wondered if they're taking that statement very literally. So for example... For example, let's say you have a sentence in the passage and the correct answer restates it, but mm -hmm. doesn't restate it verbatim, right? It, it just uh, mm -hmm. mixes around the words. And I wonder if they're thinking to themselves, well, this is a new statement. It was never literally said in the passage, but it is a statement that must be true given that line. Yeah. Like I I wonder if they if they are like very you know Yeah, that, that could that totally way. be. Yeah. I think they also want to have several different ways of asking the same question instead of using the same words over and over to ask that question. Sure. So they they have, you know, they're trying to like phrase it creatively and make people have to read. But that it just strikes me that they can't really be wanting to trap the top students because <laughs> meanwhile, some of the lower or middle students in the class will get that one right. Mm -hmm. Cause they'll just be like, Oh, well that's what it said. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, I know.
<laughs> perfect. <laughs> and meanwhile, you know, the kid in the room who's scoring 173, that's like one of the only ones they missed on the entire test mm-hmm. because they're they're trying to infer something or they're trying to think about what the author would would agree with. Yeah. Anyway, those ones I had to train myself not to miss those ones. I think I missed a lot of must be true questions generally when I was starting out because I didn't realize how solidly evidence-based they were. Yeah. Yeah. I'm used to like, I'm smart. I'm used to figuring things out, but they frequently on must be true questions. Aren't looking for you to figure out anything. They just want you to pick the one that it said. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Matt goes on to say, thank you. If you ever do read these questions, which we just did, let me know so I can tell my mom which episode it is. It's on episode 83. (laughs) Which uh, you hopefully now know. (laughs) Hi, Matt's mom. By the way, he says, do you have any of those strategy prep shirts available anymore? I can't find an ordering link on the website. No, sorry. But if I ever do, I'll let you know, Matt. Dude, I want a strategy prep shirt. (laughs) Yeah, I made it I made it a long time ago. It was like five years ago. And on the back it said Mauve Dinosaurs, high cholesterol, <laughs> plankton, and a a couple other things. It was just like this list of things. And then it said if That's awesome. If you recognize these terms, welcome to the club. <laughs> That's cool. Maybe we should do some thinking else at shirts. That'd be fun. Yeah, that'd be fun. People would get into that. Yeah. Cool. So this next one is from Calvin. He just uh, took the test, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Do you want to tackle this one? Sure. It says, hey, Nathan and Ben, I wrote you guys last time after my test and thought I'd do the same this time. So that, yeah, this is an, a report from February 2017. My sections were, even though Nathan doesn't care, LOL. That's true. I don't care. But the sections were LR, RC, LR, LR, LG. Just got back from taking February 27 LSAT. Overall, it was very similar to the December 2016 LSAT in that the LR and RC sections weren't super easy or super hard. They seemed very standard. Third and fourth games seemed very similar in setup to the third game on December 2016. I liked this part. The second game seemed to be the quote one-off game, but after Nathan's advice and seeing the December quote one-off, it was actually one of the easier ones. We've been talking about that a lot lately, and I think that's a very nice thing to point out, that just because a game looks different and strange, it does not have to be hard. Um, all the information's there, and sometimes these one-off games actually turn out to be the easiest game on the entire section. Yeah, that's interesting. I completely agree with that. It's, it's interesting to me that he said the second game seemed to be the one-off game because... Uh, from what I've heard back so far, no one has talked about it. So maybe it was a one-off game and very easy or... Just an easy game, yeah. Hmm. Or I don't know. But yeah, I'd be curious. His, uh, his comments on LR and RC are consistent with what I've heard, that they're kind of middle of the road. They seemed normal. Um, he did say that he had three LRs this time and last time. The only thing I would point out to that is sometimes people ask what their experimental section is likely going to be. And I would just say it's probably going to be an LR section because they have to do two LR sections for every game and reading comp section. So I would just go into the test planning on taking three LRs. Yeah. And also 
plan on if you hate reading comprehension plan on having to (laughs) plan on whatever you hate yeah totally so that you can at least be prepared or pleasantly surprised if it turns out to be something else yep yeah yeah i think that's basically it for this email i mean thanks thanks again for the podcast especially for all the talk about mindset it has really helped me hopefully i won't need it for a third go so fingers crossed best calvin so yeah, thanks, Calvin. Sure. So maybe the mindset he's referring to there is that nothing matters. Is that what he's talking about? <laughs> yeah, that's going to be our new thing. We're going to have a everyone. We need to. Our, we could close out the show with like, "Don't worry. In a hundred years, no one will ever remember that you even existed." <laughs> you know, uh, part of the source of this idea that's been uh, coming up in my mind for a while is I read the book *Sapiens*. Did I tell you about that already? I don't know. Sapiens. Yeah, it's it's one of these books that actually Obama recommended, I think, last year. he I guess he has like a top 10 list of books that he recommends. Who's that? Uh, he's, he's the former president of the United States. No, Trump has always been president. You know, I think you're right. I don't know who Obama <laughs> is. <laughs> All right, go ahead. So... Uh, <laughs> Anyways, I read this book, and it basically takes uh, it, it starts uh, forty five thousand or a hundred thousand years ago, and it just kind of walks through the history of of humanity. And one of the things that he spends a lot of time talking about is, I guess, about forty five thousand years ago, there was the cognitive revolution, and this basically gave us the ability. Something changed, and that change gave us the ability to imagine things that weren't there. Uh, or real. So I guess before that time, uh, someone could imagine a bear because they had bears were real things. And even though a bear wasn't there, they could imagine it and they could talk about it. But sometime around 45,000 years ago, they suspect that humans got the ability to talk about things that don't even exist. So something that doesn't exist would be like a country. This is actually what we just talked about in the last episode. Remember that LR question or two episodes ago? It was about how... Countries that don't really exist. Don't really exist, right? Yeah. And so he basically, he starts talking about this, this ability to imagine things that don't exist and how that gave us a huge edge over all their species. At, At the time, we were in the middle of the food chain. When we got that ability to imagine things that don't exist we popped up to the top really fast. Hmm. And it basically the idea is that um, when you can imagine other, like things beyond that don't exist, you can create order out of chaos. Like hmm. everybody sort of has a collective goal and that goal is, is itself imaginary, right? It doesn't, it's not a thing, but because collectively you can believe in uh, whatever it is, like taking over the top of that hill or whatever, you can start doing things that other species can't. They can't collectively Hmm. gather behind a abstract imaginary goal. And so as he starts talking about this, he starts going into the fact that most of modern society is possible because we have all these imaginary beliefs. We believe in, quote, laws, um, but in reality they don't exist Um People believe them, so when someone, quote, breaks a law, which is not actually, nothing is being broken. It's just someone said something. It's not like the law of gravity, right? You can't break that. If it was a real law, you couldn't actually break it. But 
because people believe in it, if someone breaks it, someone else comes in and does something, right? But if no one collectively believed in that law or standard, they wouldn't enforce it on others. So it's all just in our head, basically. <laughs> and as he was going through this chapter after chapter, I just kind of started thinking, wow, none of this matters. And so even if you have like a goal, <laughs> it's just something that you've kind of created for yourself, right? Or if you have a purpose in your life, it's something that's sort of imaginary. You've just kind of created it and then that makes you excited and you can go toward fulfilling it. But it's just, again, something that you created. So anyways, I, I mean, I don't know how <laughs> how much I buy into that, but uh, at least enough to, to uh, think about it a lot. So if you don't reach your goal, it doesn't matter because it was imaginary to begin with. You just created it out of nothing. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, and and like sort of like what's, you know, like Elon Musk wants to save the human race by getting us on Mars and stuff. And that sounds amazing and cool and awesome. And I'm excited for him. But at the same time, it's sort of like, yeah. And what for? You know, like, okay, great. So we live on. Wow. Does it matter? I don't know. Anyways, I don't mean to be so philosophical, but. I think you are a nihilist. Is that what that is? I think it might be. Okay. Although I only know that from the Big Lebowski, so it might not be right. I don't know. (laughs) Good, good. So uh, next question is from Madison. So what was her subject line? She says, I hope you, I hope the Seuss subject line caught your attention. I forget what it was, but it was like a red fish, one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish play on that. She was proud of that. So she, she, she quoted, she's referring to her own subject line. Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> cool. Dr. Seuss, who doesn't love Dr. Seuss? That's right. Uh, so what does Madison have to say? Um, okay. So it says a note before you begin this email, if you choose to read this on your podcast, I ask that you don't read the red section aloud. It contains details about my personal statement, which is of course personal. So I'm going to skip the part here. That's red. Okay. I'm applying to law school to start in August of 2018. I began studying for the LSAT in November, December of, I guess, 2016. And I plan on taking the June and the September slash October test. It's September this year, right, Ben? That's right. Yep. Okay. I'm shooting for a 178. Um, okay. Uh, right away, I would say, why not a 179? You know, like yeah. you think you're you're better than a 177, but you're not quite good enough for a 179. I don't know. 178 is just a oddly specific number, and I would never recommend people shoot for specific numbers. No, I would just shoot for the uh, range up there. I mean, it's so random. It depends on the the uh, yeah. scale for that test and everything. Yeah. Anyway, anything higher than 175 is all the same, really, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're 99th percentile at 173, so I just can't imagine why you need to be higher than that. Yeah. Okay. Ambitious, I know, but I've always been a good test taker, and I'm one of those weirdos who's actually enjoying studying for the LSAT. I have a mediocre GPA, 3.2, from a top five public university, and I'm in my mid-20s, so there's no chance of improving that GPA. So I guess what she means is she's graduated. Mm -hmm. So yeah, she's got a 3.2, but it sounds like it's from a good school. And if you combine that with a great LSAT score, yeah, you're going to get into some top, top law schools. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, because of my subpar GPA, I feel like my personal statement, LSAT, resume, and letters of recommendation have to be out of this world to get into my dream school, which is Stanford. Uh, boy. Hmm. What are the odds of getting into Stanford with 3.2? I don't want to crush Madison's dreams right off the bat here, but I feel like a 180 might not get her into Stanford. Uh... Depends on her major, I guess. Yeah. If she studied electrical engineering or something. But Stanford with, with a 3.2 and a 180, I could easily see Stanford denying you. Yeah, GPA matters a lot more at this top 14. Well, everything matters at the top 14. And, you know, Stanford's not, <laughs> it's an insult to Stanford to call them top 14, right? Yeah, I mean, they're top. <laughs> top three. <laughs> yeah. Top one or two, you know, so... If I was Madison, I would be, it's great to have your dream school, but I would be broadening the net to include lots of other schools in the top 14 and, or if, if the Bay area or California is what you're looking at, then, you know, you need to start thinking about, um, UC Berkeley and probably need to think about UCLA because those are also fine schools. Well, even Ber probably Berkeley with a 3.2 might might be an automatic no. But, you know, you could get into UCLA with a 3.2 and a great LSAT score. Yeah. And UCLA is a great law school. So, Hey, so I have some interesting yeah. numbers here. Okay. <laughs> I put it into the LSAT GPA calculator on LSAT.org. And Good. for a 3.2 and a 178, assuming she gets her goal, she has a 30% chance, roughly, to get into Harvard. Stanford isn't in the system, so I guess they don't right. give their data to LSAC. We could use Harvard as a proxy for Stanford. I think those are close enough. Sure. Although Harvard's a much bigger school, so I think it might actually be easier to get into Harvard. Hmm. Interestingly, <laughs> if... At least according to this, if you drop the uh, LSAT score down, given her GPA, say to a 173, she then uh -huh. has like, uh, it says 15% chance. So I don't know how, how much that matters at that point. Um, but anyways. So it actually is, well, I mean, that's a big jump though. Like that's five points. Mm -hmm. 173 to 178 is a pretty big jump. I mean, I guess, so I, I know I earlier said, I don't think it matters, but. I guess it matters on the margins. It matters somewhat, but you know, you're still only talking about twenty percent, fifteen percent chance difference, yeah. and and that's with a huge difference from one seventy three to one seventy eight. Yeah, I think if you're yeah. So anyway, I think at that point, a lot of things like your personal statement do start to matter in your experience because you have the 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 qualifications at least in terms of test taking. So I think they're more worried about how do you present yourself? Do you seem like a promising candidate or just another high scorer who randomly did well? Yeah. I mean, they don't, they don't want people like me in there, you know? Yeah. They, they, don't, they don't want, they really don't. Yeah, I mean, or me. <laughs> they do not need a super smart, smart ass who is going to like buck, try to buck the system. You know, they don't want that. Mm -hmm. They don't, they don't need they don't want the guy who's going to be rolling his eyes in the back of the classroom because he's bored. Mm -hmm. They want, they want earnest, hardworking folks. You know, they want good, they want good students. Yeah. Like they want people like Gorsuch. 
You may disagree yeah. with his, you know, judicial philosophy, but the guy's top notch when it comes to school. Right, right. When I look at my, I was going through the other day, actually going through LinkedIn, and I was looking at my Stanford contacts, mm. my former students who are at Stanford or have graduated now from Stanford. Yeah. And there's, you know, 10 of them. And they are pretty consistently just superstar students. I mean, they are really good students. They Those people would never have gotten a 3.2. Like, there's just no way. They're the type that are sitting in the front row of every single class. And even though they're incredibly smart, they still work their ass off. And they they really are like very earnest, appreciative, kind of uh, just... I don't know. I don't know how to say it. They're just really, really attentive, really good students. Yeah. And they would always get really good grades. And those are the people that I know that have gotten into Stanford. So, um, yeah, you know, good luck, Madison. But that 3.2, it's it's possible that the ship has sailed. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, do the odds, right? Apply to a bunch like you're saying and see which ones are are interested. Maybe maybe some of the top three are. Oh, totally. Yeah. And if you end up with a 30% chance of getting into Harvard and if you apply to Harvard and Stanford and a bunch of other of those top 14, top 10, top five, whatever, if you apply to all the top schools, then, you know, if you get to roll the dice on 30% a whole bunch of times, you're likely to get one or two of them to hit, you know? Okay. Anyway, and maybe Stanford hits and I hope it does. So don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not telling you to give up on your dream. (laughs) Although Ben says your dream doesn't even exist. (laughs) And you don't exist. No, she's a real thing. She's a real person. Okay. Just doesn't doesn't matter what we do. (laughs) All right. She goes on and says, um, I love their public interest program and everything about their curriculum. And then it says, Faye, if you're randomly listening to this podcast, please let me in. So there you go. Faye in Stanford, let in Madison. Faye is definitely listening. Yeah. Here's where the question comes in. Obviously, because I'm looking to go into public interest law, my community outreach and volunteer experiences are somewhat relevant. My personal statement will revolve around the volunteer work that's most meaningful to me. And then here she talks about specifically what that volunteer work is, and she doesn't want to uh, give that away. She doesn't want people ripping that off, I guess, on and, and stealing her idea for her personal statement. So we're not going to talk about the parts in red. And she says, but I'd like to discuss my other volunteer work too. It's a huge part of who I am and it's what I spend the most time doing outside of work. Would making two resumes be an effective way of discussing my other volunteer experiences? No, no, absolutely not. Just make what? a longer resume. And by the way, most people's resumes are way too long. They have too many bullet points that outline too many stupid tasks. Take the one or two, maybe three most important tasks that you had at a job and highlight those as concisely as possible. Yeah, you you sell yourself short when you try to list every single bullet, everything you did there, because necessarily the – the least impressive ones on your resume, you know, when people read that, they're like, Oh, sharpened pencils. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, well, okay, you did that. That's great. But I don't need, 
I could have assumed that you were working in an office and that there were certain office tasks. Or, or here's another one. No offense to those people who have sent me their resumes with this on it, but things like computer skills, Microsoft Word, Excel, that's like par for yeah. the course these days. Right. And it makes you look like you don't have other computer skills if you say you do have um, Excel. Yeah. You know, now, if you if you did visual basic programming inside of Excel, that might be something that would be worth notice noting, you know, because it's actually a technical skill that nobody else has. Sure. But if you're just saying you know how to do a mail merge word processing, you know, I don't think you need to put that. In fact, I would definitely say don't. Yeah. Resumes are annoying. I don't even read them anymore. I used to like because I, I love reading personal statements for my students, but I don't I I decline when they want to send me their resume anymore. I don't look at it. I, I never have anything interesting to say. I always just say this is a mess. It's too much. Cut it way down. Why are you including all this stuff? And so I don't know. I think the resume. Yeah, I certainly would you even be able to upload two resumes to the to the credential assembly service? I don't, I don't think, think you would. I don't think you would. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, she's saying she would have it saved as one PDF and have it double-sided when printed no, with just, a professional resume on one side and a volunteer resume on the other. I don't know. I would just organize it. I mean, that just sounds <laughs> like, like creating it. a volunteer section, which is fine on one resume. Yeah, a volunteer section is totally fine. And I don't know, if it looks like you're trying to get away with submitting two resumes, I could see somebody in a committee somewhere being like, oh boy, this is, here we go. Another pain in the ass you know you know like <laughs> not respecting my time what are you doing yeah well i'm just thinking about uh my own experience reviewing resumes and applications uh i have job postings on my site right and there are a list of things that i'm asking for in that initial email look i need to know this i need to know that and it surprises me how many people it's a bullet point list, a numbered list, and they don't provide all of those things. And it's sort of yeah. like you're applying for a job and you can't follow this simple list. How are you supposed to follow other tasks that are much more complicated than this? You know, it's just yeah. a horrible first impression. And so I think the same thing applies to law school. They've sat down, they've written what they want. And when you start deviating from that in any way, shape, or form, like, oh, my personal statement, it, it can be a little bit longer. Like, this, these last two sentences are really crucial, and I'm going to, I'm just going to go over the word limit. They're, the first thing you're going to think is, what the hell is wrong with you? Why can't you follow simple instructions? I mean, that's, that would be my reaction. Yeah. Sorry no, I to totally go off on that. Yeah, no, but, I mean, not following the directions, not following the directions is a problem. They asked you for a resume. They didn't ask you for two resumes. No, I, I'm sorry, Madison. I didn't mean to. <laughs> That's why she's asking. She's curious if she can do this. I don't mean to oh, go yeah. after. If she's a listener, she knows we're not trying to beat up anybody specifically. <laughs> I mean, we're just <laughs> trying to solve the issue here. So, Just a warning for anyone out there. If, you, if you're thinking about making an exception to the rule, don't. Just do what they ask. Yeah, yeah. I also think you might just be overthinking the resume here. I mean, the resume is not making up for your 3.2. That's not how that's going to go down. If they're looking at your resume, they've already kind of decided that they want you. Mm -hmm. So I don't think you're going to change their mind by, holy shit, wow, look at this separate volunteer resume. I just don't think that's how that's going to work. 
go ahead and have a section that says volunteer, whatever, and just put it all list it all out on the resume. You know, and the other thing is you're going to write your personal statement about your volunteer work. You don't need to list all 40 volunteer organizations you you worked at, but you can certainly say 40 volunteer whatever, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you can say that as a as a when when your her story is going to be about one particular volunteer experience and that's great. You can also put it in the personal statement that you've volunteered since you were 12 and that you volunteer every week and that you've volunteered for 40 different, that'll be impressive as part of your personal statement. Yeah. But I don't think you're, I don't think you're going to knock their socks off with, with the resume. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it makes sense. And I think that if, if there is some value in listing all the things that she has done, then just make a bullet point list of all the organizations that she's worked at on the resume. Yeah, and don't and, go into each one. Just the title should probably be enough. And then for the big right. ones or the recent ones, because I think the law schools only really care about things that have happened during or after, more importantly, after college. So I imagine there'd only be a couple that she'd want to actually expand on. Yeah, and then the list of all the different organizations, I mean, that could be very impressive as a list. And that, you know, maybe it takes up a third of a page or something and she'll have a two-page resume. Mm-hmm. I think that's totally fine. Uh, but I, yeah, I wouldn't, I do not think I would format it as two separate resumes. That doesn't sound great to me. Okay. Anything else on that? No. Okay. Yeah. Madison, you seem like a great candidate. I'm, I'm not trying to beat you up for your 3.2. That is what it is. And I mean, you're going to do great things no matter where you go. So, uh, hopefully if it's Stanford, that's awesome. If it's not Stanford, then, you know, their loss and you will, you'll go do amazing work. Any other number of great law schools. Yeah. I think that's it for our emails for today. We, we are down at this reminder here on our agenda that says we need to promote our subscribe page. Yeah, so the subscribe page is thinkingelsat.com forward slash blog forward slash subscribe. I'm curious whether, how our listeners found us. I mean, this subscribe page will give you an email every time we release a new episode. So about once a week or once every other week when we do. And it'll tell you what the what we talk about in that episode. But I'm just curious, uh, how did... I mean, this is a broader question, but how did people find us? Did they? Did you find us from a friend? Did you uh, just find us by searching in iTunes for a blog on the, or sorry, not a blog, but for a podcast on the LSAT? Did you find us from our blog? I don't know. Do you have any sense of this? Yeah. It seems like it's always like tell a friend. Yeah. I, I hear, I hear tell a friend at all. Did, <laughs> did I tell you about running into the guy in Toronto who was a listener? No. Oh, it was awesome. I had had like four beers and I'm hanging out in this bar in Toronto and chatting to some guy and the guy says something somehow the, I, Oh, maybe he asked me what I did. And I said, Oh, I, uh, I'm an LSAT teacher. Do you have, do you have any idea what that is? And he's like, LSAT. Oh yeah. No, I've been thinking about going to law school I, or something. And I, I was, I had had my four beers, you know, and I'm, I'm like, <laughs> just tipsy enough to say, well, you know, you're in luck because 
I don't think there's anybody who knows more than I do about the LSAT. (laughs) (laughs) And the dude goes, it was hilarious because the dude goes, oh, I don't know about that, man. I listen to this podcast and on the podcast, there's these two guys and they seem like they really know. And I go, oh, you mean you listen to my podcast? (laughs) And the dude's like, what? Huh? And I go, yeah. Uh, remember I said I was, my name's Nathan a little bit ago. He's like, what? What? <laughs> it, was, it was the craziest thing ever to, to randomly encounter uh, someone in the wild who just, yeah, some random person at the bar who listens to it. But yeah, no, I have no idea how he found it. So you're saying that all those downloads aren't just our, our family. Is that what you're saying? No, I think there are actual real uh, people out there in the world who are listening. Uh, thanks so much for listening, by the way. I mean, this is, we've talked about this before, but it's really one of the most fun things that I do career-wise. This has been super satisfying to to be able to put this out there and have people get something out of it. I mean, really, Ben, how much work do we put into this? Not very much. No, it's, no. We get emails from listeners we throw it on an agenda. We get together once a week on Skype and talk about it. And it's always fun. And I don't know. It's just like, it's a privilege to be able to do this. And especially when people send us emails and thank us profusely for the work that we do. I don't know. It's just uh, it's very satisfying. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why we're doing it, but it's great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for the laughs, mostly, yeah. it seems to me. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So yeah, definitely go to that subscribe link. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. And uh, if you want to just talk to us, we love hearing from you. You can email to both Ben and me simultaneously if you send email to help at thinkinglsat.com. We do get those emails. We do read all of them. I think we respond to every single email that comes in. I do. Mm Mm-hmm. And if you ask an interesting question or if you make a funny comment, we will definitely put that on the agenda for the show. Yeah, for sure. Cool. And you can also tweet us questions uh, at ThinkingLSAT or tweet me directly at NFox or tweet Ben directly at Strategy Prep. Cool. Should we jump into the June test? Yeah, let's do one. This episode's already going to be really long because we got that interview to get to, uh, to paste in. So maybe we'll do one question from June 2007 and then we'll call it a day. Sure. So we are on um, sec- or question 17 in section three of the June 2007 LSAT. If you're just joining us, you can Google that June 2007 LSAT. It will be your first uh, PDF that pops up. Download that and then go to section three, read question 17 and answer it and then follow along. So yeah, hit the pause button and go do number t- number 17 on your own and uh, then come back and listen to our explanation. Yeah. And most people can do this while they're driving. So that's totally fine too. They can read the LSAT and they can, down- they can download the PDF, uh, read it. And stuff. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Now we definitely need a safety warning on our podcast. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully it won't matter pretty soon, right? Once everyone has self-driving cars, then. That's happening, man. That is happening. Oh, for sure. I'm expecting that in 2017. I'm expecting to ride in an autonomous vehicle in 2017. 
Cool. Yeah. I, I know that's a bold prediction, but I think it's going uh, to No, I think it's going to happen faster than most people think. I think that it's also going to become illegal to drive yourself. That'll be tough because there's going to be all sorts of holdouts. Like, we need to wait for old people to die, you know? Like people who are super crazy about, oh, I love to drive my car. I need to, you know, I got to be in control. Kids these days don't even like get their driver's license when they turn 16, right? So <laughs> yeah, people wait forever or sometimes never even drive, which is a totally sensible thing. I mean, especially now with Uber and, and Lyft, it's totally sensible to not ever drive a car. Well, it's uh, it's interesting. I think you're right. There will be holdouts, but boy, the evidence will just stack against them day by day. Yeah, right? and every and every bloody wreck, you know, yeah. which is just a hundred percent human error. And when the when the perfect driving record of these autonomous vehicles just continues to pile up and up and up, yeah, it's it seems like an inevitability. Yeah. All right. So question seventeen says. When exercising the muscles in one's back, it is important in order to maintain a healthy back to exercise the muscles on opposite sides of the spine equally. This is why I just don't exercise the muscles in my back at all because, you know, then it's definitely you stay at equal. Yeah. If you don't do anything, (laughs) you don't want to risk over-exercising one side or the other. Yeah, this is right. interesting. It sounds to me like the conclusion. I mean, that's just my initial gut reaction because when it says it is important to exercise the muscles on opposite sides of the spine equally, it sounds like something this person is trying to prove. But Yeah, and that we might expect that there's going to be some evidence to support that. Yep. And the, sure. the next two words, in fact, are after all, which often introduce evidence. So... That probably is the main conclusion. But anyways, it says, after all, balanced muscle development is needed to maintain a healthy back since the muscles on opposite sides of the spine must pull equally in opposing directions to keep the back in proper alignment and protect the spine. Okay, that definitely sounds like reasons why it is important to exercise the muscles on opposite sides of the spine equally. One thing about this, though, I don't know. Do you, I mean, one thing is strikes me as a little strange about this argument. Do you see any problems? Do I see problems? Well, I mean, I was just trying to figure out the pieces and the parts. It, it, I think the after all does seem to be introducing a premise, or mm-hmm. at least that's what I would first think. And then the sense also is introducing a premise. Yeah. So maybe that's what they did is they went conclusion, premise, premise. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, then I might rearrange it. You know, I might think about putting them in a different order just to see if I can make it kind of make sense. Sure. And then see it because sometimes when I do that, then I'll be able to spot the gap. Okay. So what if we read it like exactly opposite? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the muscles on opposite sides of the spine must pull equally in opposing directions to keep the back in proper alignment and protect the spine. So balanced de- muscle development is needed to maintain a healthy back. So if you're exercising, you should, mu- you should do the sides equally. Mm-hmm. Does that, does that seem how the argument is proceeding? Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I feel like, um, those last two ideas were used to support the first one, which you then said last. Yeah. And 
so then the question becomes, is there a gap? And because this turns out to be an assumption question, there is a gap. Mm -hmm. I would say the way I've been teaching assumption questions lately is I, I first, I used to go straight into necessary and sufficient assumptions, mm -hmm. but I've been, I, I've realized that there's so many in the first 10 where it doesn't really matter mm -hmm. that I, I'm trying to replace that method with a bit of a sort of step one assumption means missing piece. Sure. Yeah. Because a lot of the correct answers in these questions are both necessary and sufficient. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Especially on the easier questions, like the ones in the first 10. Sure. Very frequently, they'll the assumption will be, the, the correct answer will be both a sufficient and a necessary assumption of the argument. And so you don't really need to get all that technical about it necessarily in order to answer the question. Mm -hmm. So assumption means missing piece. So can we spot a gap in this argument? Yeah. What do, you, what do you think? Well, what I'm thinking right now is that the conclusion says that it's important to do this exercise thing, right? It's like important to exercise the muscles on opposite sides of the spine equally. Yeah. But the, the argument never or the premises never talk about exercise. They just talk about how it's important to make sure that the muscles – Pull equally, pull equally and, in opposing directions. Yeah. yeah. Now, I mean, part of this is coming from something that I heard a long, long time ago. And that is if you work out one side of your body, your brain will grow the other side. I don't know if that's okay. actually true, but like if you, if you, <laughs> I think it might be true. If you, if you lift weights with your right arm, and don't do anything with your left, your left arm's muscles will still get stronger. Not as strong as the right arm, but they still get stronger. That's the random thought that came to my mind. And I think it's your body trying to, like, keep things equal. Okay. I had never heard that before. I also, if I were, I would have to present as counter evidence to that. I would invite people to take a look at Rafael Nadal. Next time you see Rafael Nadal, uh, the tennis star, mm. he's left-handed. He has one gigantic left gun, and his right gun is not nearly as big as his left. Oh, yeah. I don't think the evidence was saying that it, it does stay equal. It's just that Ironically, even if you do no exercising, it'll kind of get bigger. It'll, okay, it'll like it's like your mind or your body is telling it to try to compensate a little. I bit. see. Okay. Yeah. But in any in any case, you definitely don't need to know that to know that, to answer this question. But it <laughs> yeah. it is one thing that came right into my mind. I was like, wait a sec. Do you really have to exercise both sides equally to keep them yeah. equally strong? I mean, well, I don't know. now we're right on it, right? Because that that is something they did not state as part of their argument. Mm -hmm. uh, they went from, hey, in order to protect the spine, you have to have muscles that pull equally in opposing directions. Mm -hmm. That's a premise. Mm -hmm. They went from that to the conclusion that, therefore, you must exercise the muscles on opposite sides of the spine equally. Mm-hmm. And there's a gap there. It's obvious. I mean, I think most people would be like, well, yeah, duh. That seems seems reasonable. Mm -hmm. But they needed to state that. They needed in, in like, if this was legal writing, they would have to state that 
premise. Yeah. I think now we're right on it. The missing piece here, the gap in the argument, is something that connects exercising opposite sides equally so that they will pull equally in opposing directions. Yeah. Then I guess the next step is it does say we're looking for an assumption that's required by the argument. Mm -hmm. So those are the words that they use when they're asking you a necessary assumption. So then if I was going to make a prediction, I would probably phrase it kind of weakly Mm -hmm. just because necessary assumption questions tend to prefer weaker answer choices. Sure. So I would say something like, um, hey, uh, you have necessarily assumed that, you know, equal exercise has something to do with how equally they pull in opposing directions. Yeah. I might add just a little bit there the idea that it's a necessary condition. I don't want to get that confused with the necessary assumption, but they said in the conclusion that in order to maintain a healthy back, this is something that you have to do. Okay, yeah. And so the only reason for... I guess being aware of that is that they're not saying that doing this is going to help you. Uh, yeah. Necessarily. They're saying that if you don't, you're screwed. If you don't, you're going to have a problem. It doesn't mean that if you do, you'll be fine. But right. the point is, is that in order, in order for you to pull equally, you better exercise equally. Yep. Great. Cool. Answer choice A. Does this have to be assumed? Muscles on opposite sides of the spine that are equally well-developed will be enough to keep the back in proper alignment. Um, No, that can be false because what about when you're 100 years old and, you know, your spine is just totally disintegrating regardless of your muscles? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I don't – that's not what they were saying. They weren't saying if you exercise both sides equally, then you're going to have a perfect spine forever. Yeah. They said, if you don't exercise the two sides equally, then you're going to have a problem. Yep. Or if they don't pull equally, then you're going to have a problem. You need them to pull equally to have a healthy back. That doesn't mean that uh, if they pull equally, you'll have a healthy back. So it's like flipped. Okay. B, exercising the muscles on opposite sides of the spine unequally, so not doing it equally, tends to lead to an unbalanced muscle development yeah i would keep this open i feel like i mean i'm being a little nitpicky here but i feel like tends to is kind of strong like it happens usually uh so i'd be sensitive to that because it's a necessary assumption question i i tend to expect these answers to be so weak that things like that make me nervous but uh tends to is weaker than if it didn't say tends to sure sure it's it's weaker than always yeah Right, yeah. Yeah, but it's still something that I guess I'm just thinking about because oftentimes these are like <laughs> at yeah. least once or <laughs> sometimes. Well, we would we would like it even better if it said can yeah. lead to unbalanced muscle development, but tends to lead to unbalanced muscle development. I mean, yeah, it's not like that's so strong that I'm, I'm going to avoid it. I would certainly keep it open here. That does seem like the, the part they didn't say, right? Mm-hmm. That seems like the missing piece. Mm-hmm. And if B is false, if it's, you know, hey, it's not true that exercising the muscles on opposite sides of the spine unequally tends to lead to unbalanced muscle development, then that creates a big problem Yeah. for this argument. It's like, well, wait a minute. No, 
because Ben has this study that all you have to do is work out one side and the brain just automatically works out the other side for you. And that would become a pretty big weakener. So mm -hmm. I'm liking B quite a lot here. Yeah. C, provided that one exercises the muscles on opposite sides of the spine equally, one will have a generally healthy back. This is the same problem as A. It's flipped around. Yeah, way too strong. It's, you know, A and C are both much more like like sufficient assumptions of the argument, not a necessary assumption, right? Yep. We're, we're not trying to make this argument win. We're looking for the one that, if it's false, will make the argument lose. Yeah. Because this is a necessary assumption question. And you know, it's, it's interesting because I don't know that C even makes it win, right? Because even if that's true, it doesn't mean that it's a necessary thing that you have to do. Right, because they were trying to prove that it's necessary. Yeah. yeah. That's a good point. Okay. D, if the muscles on opposite sides of the spine are ex exercised unequally, one's back will be irreparably damaged. Uh, <laughs> we're just trying to say that you need to exercise them equally to maintain a healthy back. Um, we're not saying that if you don't do that, you're going to have an irreparably damaged back. That's going way too far. Yeah, I I agree. It's, you know, and again, to check, right, because it's a necessary assumption question. So if you liked D, the way to check to make sure it's the right answer is you would negate it. Mm -hmm. And you would say, okay, does it destroy the argument? So I'll do it. It is not true that if the muscles on opposite sides of the spine are exercised unequally, one's back will be irreparably damaged. In other words, if we, hey, if we only work out one side, that's not going to lead to permanent harm. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, you could still fix it. Yeah, you know, you might have to have surgery or you might have to like start working out the other side a lot. Mm -hmm. But and then you can come back into alignment. And so it's not permanent. But saying it's not permanent, oh, the damage won't be permanent. That just doesn't destroy this argument. Yeah. You know, the the whole argument could have been about temporary poor alignment or whatever mm -hmm. so yeah i don't i don't see how d is necessarily part of the argument yeah e says one should exercise daily <laughs> okay this is already like going in some weird direction you could stop reading it right there i yeah. mean it that can't be necessary that cannot be a necessary assumption of the argument never talked about frequency of exercising nope. or anything like that nope okay well so be it is and i know i had those concerns but that's often the case i i feel like oh this answer might work but here's a potential problem and then i'll just go through the rest and then it's sometimes that's why i end up getting rid of that answer because some other answer is better or no answer is better than the one we had, so we go with it even if it's not perfect. But in this case, I don't think it matters because inclusion is so strong, right? It's like you need to do this, which would mean always. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, I think people don't recognize how careful we really are when we're answering these questions. You know, it's not about just, oh, this one looks like it's going to work. I'll pick it. Mm -hmm. um, we were very skeptical of the answer we ended up choosing. But we saw B, we saw, okay, maybe this could be, maybe this could be the one. Mm -hmm. But then we conclusively eliminated A, C, D, and E. Mm -hmm. And so 
then we end up with two ways to get to the right answer. It's not just about identifying why the right answer is right. It's also about identifying why the four wrong answers are wrong. Yeah. And that gives us two chances to save ourselves. You know, we got, we're, we're getting there. It's kind of like we're getting there both ways at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I think students love, I know students love just falling in love with an answer choice. You know, they'll, well, but this one says what well, the thing I wanted. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, that's good. But what about all the other answers? And were you able to, to eliminate those? Cause, cause you are sure they're not saying what you wanted. Yeah. And, um, that's how you, that's how you just get them all right on the logical reasoning. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Well, I think, is that it for today? Yeah, I think so. We've got this uh, interview to get to, so we'll just uh, leave it there. Any last words for the listeners? You want to back off on your nihilistic philosophies <laughs> at all, or are you gonna you gonna tell them something like, um, "See you next week," although it doesn't matter yeah. if you do or don't. Um, yeah, just uh, keep in mind. I mean, there is a lot of value in following us, you know, and listening to the podcast, I do think that there is at least purpose to that. So (laughs) yeah, you know, I don't know. Well, I have to just keep mulling it over. Uh, It's a good book. It's Sapiens by some guy. I can't remember the name of it, but if you just look it up, um, it was a very interesting read to sort of run through human history for the last 100,000 years, all the way up to today. And so that was, that was kind of a you know, it's a little mind altering. You're sort of like, wow, now I can kind of see things in a different light. Like these people do that and those people do this. And maybe it's kind of stems back to things that happened a long time ago or maybe not. But my last thought would be, hey, if you're in L.A. or San Francisco, check out Nathan's classes. Your website is foxlsat.com, right? My website is foxlsat.com. I do have classes registering right now for the spring in San Francisco and Los Angeles. Uh, I also, of course, have an online class that you can do anywhere in the world. Uh, If you're in Washington, D.C., check out strategyprep.com and sign up for one of Ben's classes, which are, those have got to be registering now, right, Ben? Yeah, they are. Um, And they're filling up quickly. So I'm going to have to see if I can uh, reserve. uh, another room on another night and maybe split the classes, um, or at least one of them. But, uh, yeah, I, I have an online class as well, uh, which yep. is open, open for anyone at any time. So awesome. Um, okay. So we are going to now transition into an interview that I did with Eliza Ganuni. She's a, uh, bankruptcy attorney here in Los Angeles. Hope you enjoy and we'll talk to you next time. Yeah. Thanks. See ya. So you did a couple years at Santa Monica and then uh, two years at Berkeley. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So you graduated with a degree, a BA in poli sci and government from UC Berkeley. Uh, did you know already that you wanted to be a lawyer? You know, it was, it was, it was what I was, the direction I was going in. I knew I wanted, um, I knew I wanted a higher education and my sister was in law school. And so it was, the path that I was on. I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my degree, to be honest. I, I wasn't, you know, in my head, I didn't think about bankruptcy law or what I would, what kind of work I'd be doing, but I just knew that it was a challenging 
degree and it was useful. And that's why I wanted to, to go to law school. Okay. And you went to law school. It looks like you went to law school straight out of undergrad. Is that right? No break in between? No, I, I took a year off. Oh, one year take in a- between. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Tell me about your, your prep for that. Uh, I'm interested in things like how long did you study for the LSAT? Did you take the LSAT multiple times? Did you take a prep class? How many uh, law schools did you apply to? Okay. So yeah, after, right after I graduated from undergrad, I signed up for test masters. So that was a, I took that course in Los Angeles. Okay. And the first time I studied for the test, I actually decided, you know, that I wanted to take a break and that I wasn't sure if I wanted to go to law school. So I did have a period of time where I wasn't sure and I wanted to explore other options and, you know, figure out, I knew I wanted to go to grad school. I just wasn't positive that it was law school. So I took time off. I worked at a law firm for a little while. And then while working at the law firm, I think I realized that I wanted to be actually a lawyer at the law firm instead of sorting their mail. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So I thought, you know, I, I think that I would like to actually be one of the lawyers. I did actually work briefly for, uh, the Beverly Hills Unified School District. I became, a an assistant, uh, like a shadow for a, a disabled student. He was high functioning autistic. So I, I got to work in that field, which is kind of random. You know, I thought about getting a master's in education. So that led me to thinking about that. Uh, but I finally decided that I wanted to go to law school because it was only a year more than a master's in education. And I just felt like it was more versatile. Okay. Okay. So did you take the LSAT just once? No. So I took it twice. Oh, you took it twice. Okay. Yeah. Why did you take it twice? The first time I took it, I wasn't, I think I canceled it. It was so long ago. I think that's how it worked. You don't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know what your score is, I think. Right. That's right. So I canceled it and then I took it again and I scored, I think I scored a 161. Yeah. Solid, solid score. Just a, you know, side note for the listeners. uh, We really don't encourage people to ever cancel their score. Law schools these days really only care about your highest score. So um, today that would be a pretty significant strategic mistake to take the test, but not, but not, uh, you know, put a score on record. It sounds like it worked out fine for you. You just had to, do you remember why you, why you canceled? You, you just thought you did poorly. I think so. Yes. Yeah. Right. Okay. So you cancel, you take it again, you get the 161. Did you have good grades undergrad? I had really good grades. So that's what really helped me. I had above, like, I think my cumulative from including my, my GPA at SMC and then my GPA at Berkeley was like 3.89 or something. It was pretty high. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that is. I studied pretty hard. (laughs) Okay, good. Yeah. I mean, people who want to be lawyers should be the type of people who study really hard, at least in my opinion. All right. So you get your 161, you apply, how many, how many schools did you apply to? I applied pretty late because of my whole deciding if I was going to go to law school or not. So I applied pretty late in the game. And so I really only applied to two schools in Los Angeles, Pepperdine and Loyola. Okay. How did you choose Pepperdine and Loyola? 
my sister went to Loyola and I had some family members or friends who had gone to Loyola and I just heard that it was a great school and uh, I just really enjoyed the diversity of the campus and the fact that it was a standalone campus. So I just heard really great things about it and I knew a lot of great practitioners who came out of Loyola. So those things made me lean towards Loyola. I did also apply to Pepperdine and I got a full a full tuition scholarship. But with law school, you only get that scholar, you only can keep the scholarship if you maintain a certain GPA. So I had to then decide between Loyola and Pepperdine. Okay. So do I infer that you did not get the scholarship to Loyola, but you had the scholarship to Pepperdine and you turned yes. down, so you turned down the scholarship to Pepperdine and went and paid full price for the date the day program at Loyola. Yes. Okay. And you were you on the hook for the money or was your family paying for it or how did that go down? Oh, for my student loans and stuff? Yeah. No, I paid for it. I just took out student loans. Okay. So you take out a mountain of student loans to go to Loyola. Yes. Wow. Okay. But if I would have gone to Pepperdine, I would have had to live on campus. And I know people who got scholarships even at Loyola when they first started. But if they didn't maintain their GPA, they would lose it second semester. So it wasn't really, it's not like I got a ride, full ride for three years. Right. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. No, the contingencies matter. Do you remember what the renewal requirements were at Pepperdine at the time? You know, I don't remember. I just know that you had to maintain a pretty good GPA. Yeah. And, you know, pretty good GPA means different things at different schools, right? I don't know. It does. It does. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you because there are schools where they'll say, oh, well, all you have to do is maintain a 3.0. Mm-hmm. And that sounds easy, right? In law school, yeah. <laughs> right. In law school, maintaining a certain GPA, which I, I didn't know at the time, is pretty difficult. Yeah. Well, it depends on where they center their curve. So at some law schools, they will have a school policy where, you know, the, the professors are required to make it so that the average GPA of their class, the, you know, so that the average grade is a B minus and a B minus is not a 3.0, right? A B minus is a 2.7. So, um, but that has to be, that's, they are required to give a B minus as the average grade in the class. And so then people come from undergrad with, you know, you had very good grades, right? Right. And you're, you know, you've never gotten, you don't get B minuses. You've got a 3.8 GPA or 3.9 GPA. And then you arrive at law school and you're like, oh, what? All I have to do is maintain a 3.0. That's no problem. But then your professor (laughs) says, okay, but the average grade in my class is a B minus. Right. I mean, honestly, the first two weeks of law school, I realized I, most people, I think, go to go into law school with, you know, there a lot of us are type A personalities and we go in thinking we're going to be top of the class and we're going to be the best. And then we we get into it and, and we just think, wow, I just want to survive. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the other thing to take into account is that people don't realize what type of competition they're they're stepping into. Right. I mean, everyone at law school is smart and hardworking. Yeah. And that's not really true in your undergraduate career. Even at UC Berkeley, there are still people there that are coasting and 
you know, trying to figure it out. And in law school, there's very few of those people in law school. Most of them are pretty serious grinders. You agree with that? Totally. And also, even though, you know, I did get a partial or I got the scholarship to Pepperdine and turned it down. I don't regret that at all because I was so happy at Loyola and I'm still so connected with my, with the Loyola community and my network. So many of the people I work with and partner up on cases with our people who I went to law school with and some of my best friends. So, you know, even with that possibility of having had a scholarship, first of all, I don't think I would have been able to keep it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to sustain the grades. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm happy that I chose Loyola. Yeah. That's awesome. You, you were very complimentary of Loyola when we met the other day. I mean, why do you think, what, what do you think it is about Loyola? Why do you think that culture is there? It's a very diverse, it's a, it's a campus that really promotes diversity and there's a lot, it's a Jesuit school. So they have a tradition of really respecting religious differences. They teach different religious laws. Like they have a class called uh, Catholic law or the law and Catholic tradition, Jewish law, Islamic law. And there's a lot of, it's just a very diverse campus, the students and the professors and the administration. It also just, the professors and the administration really uh, promote cooperation and they promote the students to help each other. So it's a very, uh, it's an environment that really promotes harmony in a way. It sounds, it sounds great. You were there (laughs) in the middle of the 2000s. I see here that you you did some uh, on-campus politicking while you were there. Did I? I don't. I don't know. What... <laughs> you, you did. Oh yeah, I was like student representative. <laughs> okay. Class representative, I think. Yes. Yeah, that's one of the things. But it says here that you had a, a particular cause on campus that you were working on. Uh, had to do with the cafeteria. Oh yes, I wanted. I really wanted healthier food options. Okay, is that what you're? Is that yeah, what you're referring to? Yeah. Go ahead. I want to hear. About I really it. lobbied. I really lobbied for that. Okay. Yeah. How did you do that? What did you do? What was the? I want to hear about the campaign. I think that we met with. Um, I mean, it was so long ago, but we met with one of the administrators, and I was just saying that I think that it's really important, you know, because we're stuck on campus all day sometimes all the way through the night in the library studying that we have healthy food options instead of just fried food and oily food. You know, we have vegetables and I know it sounds funny. I really wanted one day if I, you know, if I can afford it, I really want to build a gym on campus. That would be, that's one of my, on my list of things to do. Oh, wow. Really? So Eliza Ganuni gym on the Loyola campus. Wow. If anybody from the school is listening, they should, you know, try to get you committed to that. <laughs> That's great. Did, were you successful at all in getting the healthier food choices? Did they start putting broccoli? Yeah, they started. We started even even though baked potato doesn't sound healthy. That was actually an improvement from the other options we had. So I think they had a baked potato bar with vegetables. And I don't remember exactly what else we had but they did increase the healthy food options okay (laughs) that's awesome so you had your first you know successful campaign there while you were 
still a lawyer, uh, still a law student. That, that's excellent. Um, you graduate in 2006. You immediately take the bar? Yes, yes. I did take the bar. And then um, I actually left the country to do a clerkship in the Supreme Court of Israel for four or five months. Okay. Okay, so then when I was in Israel with a couple of other American graduates, Americans who had just taken the bar and also had just graduated from law school, we all pretty much found out, you know, within a few days of each other, because we were from different different states, that, you know, some people passed the bar. Actually, everyone passed the bar except for me. Okay. So I found out when I was there that I failed. All the other clerks had passed the bar, and I did not. Okay. So, yeah, t- t- talk to us about that. How, how did that feel? Yeah, that was not very fun. <sighs> God. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So imagine you're there with all these other, you know, Harvard people who went to Harvard and I don't know, other Ivy Leagues and I'm the only one who didn't pass. So that was that was not fun. Yeah, what did you what did you do about it? You know, I I told my family that I didn't pass and they they immediately, you know, recommended that I come back to take it and I said, "Well, I'm not going to interrupt my program, you know, my clerkship." This once in a lifetime opportunity to just come back and study for a test that I could study for when I get back. Okay. So you finished your clerkship. Yeah. So I finished up my clerkship and the program I was on and then I came back and then uh, I worked a few different jobs, not necessarily legal jobs, but worked. I worked at a law firm. I worked, actually I worked for a bar prep company Okay. for a little bit just as a salesperson. Okay. And then I know I ironic. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, or totally perfect because you're you're like you, who else is more qualified to to sell the the benefits of a bar prep class than someone who failed the bar, right? You can just be like, yeah, no, you really need to do this. Yeah, and then I took it again. So, yeah. a year after. So you skipped one bar administration, yeah. is that right? And then you you took it the same bar Got yes. it. Okay. And uh, this time you pass with flying colors. Yes. I don't know if I passed with flying colors or by the skin of my teeth. I don't know. <laughs> Did, uh, where does that expression come from? The skin I don't know. of your teeth. I just heard it. So. <laughs> do, did you do anything different for your bar prep the second time around? I did. The second time around, I stressed out less or tried not to stress at all. I really tried to just focus on the task at hand. I focused on my weaknesses, which I had not done the first time around. So the first time around, I hated, what is it, the performance test? I hated it. So I avoided it like the plague. Oh, yeah. Um, So the second time around, I said, you know, this is what I need to focus on because that's where I really messed up. I also did a lot more practice questions, the multiple choice ones. Right. Which actually, I, I used the. I, w- I had been a salesperson for Kaplan PMBR. Okay. Yeah. And I actually did use their materials the second time around, used them a lot, and it actually, I think it helped me. Yeah. Adaptabar is supposedly really good for the multiple choice part, too, right? They must be new. I don't. I don't oh, know. you haven't heard of that one. Yeah. It's been a while huh, since you, you passed the bar. Um, I've also heard that the performance test, once you know what you're doing, is like one of the easier parts of the bar exam. The essays are supposed to be. Like the hard part. 
but I don't know. I did well when I looked at my the exam that I didn't pass. Some essays I did really well, and some I did really poorly. So I figured, okay, I just need to, you know, brush up on my law, and you know, I can get through it. There's maybe a lesson there for LSAT test takers because it sounds like you ignored you ignored the performance test because you didn't like it. Exactly. You know, and then that just was totally your undoing. I think a lot of people on the LSAT do that with the logic games. Yeah, I did that with the logic games too. I did. <laughs> right. Okay, so you pass uh, on your second attempt and then you do what? So I passed and then I I think I found out that I passed in take the July bar, you find out in November. I think so then I started looking for more, you know, jobs for actual associates, associate positions. And so I eventually found the job that I was at, the firm that I was at for three years, Price Law Group. And that was a consumer bankruptcy firm. So I I basically applied for that job because it said no experience required. (laughs) Yeah. I figured that was a job for me. Perfect. And... I actually applied and I hadn't heard back from them. So I followed up with them. And if I hadn't followed up with them, they would have, you know, I wouldn't have gotten the job because they, I think they didn't get my resume or something happened. And they said, oh yeah, send it over again. And then, so I got the job and I was there for three years. Wow. During the height of the bankruptcy, basically record bankruptcy filings. Okay, so you're in, yeah, you're in the right place at the right time. It says you filed Chapter 7 bankruptcy, Chapter 13 bankruptcy. Can you tell me the difference between Chapter 7 and Chapter 13? Sure. So Chapter 7 is also known as liquidation. And a person or a company can file Chapter 7. Depending on what state you live in, you can protect a certain amount of assets and at the same time get rid of most of your unsecured debt except for our favorite student loans and (laughs) some taxes and domestic support obligations. But overall, Chapter 7 is for people who just need a fresh start and just wipe wipe the slate clean and start over. Chapter 13 is a plan of reorganization, which is for a couple of different types of people. One, it's for people who are higher income and don't qualify for a Chapter 7 and or for people who have too many assets that they cannot protect in a Chapter 7. So it's a way to protect your assets from liquidation and reorganize on the debt that you can't afford. And recently, I've been also using Chapter 13 to help people who whose student loans are just, the minimum payments are just not affordable. Okay. Cool. Yeah, let's let's get into that in just a second. I want to kind of go through your career path and get you up to the uh, up to the present day. It looks like in 2011 you started your own firm. Is that right? Yes. What made you do that? I got laid off. Oh, okay. Uh, so you were there in the go-go years of bankruptcy exactly. <laughs> and the yeah. financial crisis in 2008 through 2011. Um, it's a very good time to be a bankruptcy attorney. And then as soon as things get sorted out, then they don't have the work anymore. So they lay you off. Yes. Okay. How'd that feel? You know, it, 
it was a very friendly separation. It wasn't, there were no hard feelings and I still have a really good relationship with my old firm. Uh, and I consider them my friends and mentors. So it, it was really in a way, it was the push that I needed because I think that if I weren't laid off, I don't think I would ever go out on my own. I don't know if I would. Yeah. Did you just hang a shingle right away? How, how did that go? Did you, did you rent an office space or what did you do? Well, first, you know, I got laid off and my, my human resources person said, you know, go ahead, file for unemployment. So before I could even apl- apply for unemployment, one of my friends from law school randomly contacts me and tells me that she's doing bankruptcy work, but that she needs help. And so within two weeks of being laid off, I started getting referrals from her and I started getting referrals from other people and old clients tracked me down and started sending me clients, like sending me their, their referrals. So yeah, I really just hit the ground running. And so that was 2011. You, yeah. Did, did you, did you do it from home or did you like immediately rent an, an office suite or what did you do? I kind of did it from home and then I rented a space from a family member. So I got, you know, a reduced amount of rent okay. so that I could just, you know, get started. Were you scared about the, Hey, I, I don't know how to run a business kind of thing. Were you, were you scared about the details of, of running a business? It was kind of scary, but thankfully I had a great network of friends and a lot of friends who were self-employed already, lawyers and family members and both of my parents are self-employed. So it wasn't something that was so foreign. It was new and different. And even today, every day I learn something new, but it wasn't completely terrifying because my family was here and, you know, they, they helped me and, uh, I had a good support network. So I think that whenever you're starting out on your own, you have to have a a support network so that you can ask people for advice and, you know, make sure you don't fall into, you're still going to have pitfalls and you're still going to, you know, spend things, spend money on scam advertisers and, (sighs) you know, get ripped off here and there, but it's just part of, getting, you know, learning. Yeah, sure. I did that too. At the beginning of my business, spent money on advertising things that were basically just taking money. What do you do when a case comes in and you don't know how to handle it? You know, if I'm sure that happens, right? You get like a, a bigger fish than you really know how to fry. What, what do you do in that case? Uh, I usually just refer it out. So I have a great network of lawyers that I work with and my colleagues and I just would if something is uh beyond what I could do or that beyond what I'm comfortable doing or beyond my scope of practice then I would just refer it out to another attorney okay and attorneys pay each other referral fees for that sort of a deal right sometimes okay you you can have that kind of an arrangement yeah. or you can just say hey I can't handle this go see my friend yes okay and sometimes sometimes I co-counsel with people so if a bigger case comes in, you know, maybe you can't, you don't want to do it by yourself, but you can partner with other lawyers and work on it together as a team. Okay, cool. Okay, let's talk about, can we talk about the student loan thing? For sure. 
Yeah, I, you know, I always end up going dark on this podcast because I just hate to see people throwing their whole financial future away on a JD if they're, you know, if they don't have a clear plan for using it. So um, you've worked now with a bunch of students with like six figures of debt, I imagine. Yes, a lot of debt. Okay. Yeah, hundreds of thousands. Hundreds of thousands, potentially, of debt. Even people who don't go to law school. Right, right. Of course, yeah. I mean, so I guess if you got an MD and ended up not practicing medicine, that would do it. Uh, If you got any number of graduate degrees that don't really do anything for you, right? that that could do it. Talk to me about how that, what, what happens? I mean, what kind of recourse do you have? So there's a couple different options for people who are in over their head with student loans. There are options for people who have federal student loans. There's income-driven repayment plans where basically the amount of your payment, depending on your situation, is, you know, they, they make the payment plan so that it's a percentage of your your total income. Let's let's just pause there for a second because I know people who graduate from law school and then they immediately are in income-based repayment. Yes. Is that like just magic where you just pay less? It's based on your income. So if you graduate law school and you're making you immediately making a couple hundred thousand a year, then you might not qualify for the income-driven repayment sure, plan. Sure, but I guess my question is, you know, you're let's say you're making fifty or fifty-five thousand dollars. What happens? I mean, it, it sounds too good to be true that your payment is just lower. So, what's going on there? Well, it's only available for federal student loans. So, it, if you have private student loans, they don't really work with you. Okay, right. Like you could do a forbearance or deferment, but they don't really, unfortunately, care if, if you can't afford your payment for the private student loans. Federal student loans, there are some more options. And especially if you work for the government, there are options on those as well. Right. But if, but if two people are making the same amount of money and one of them has a higher student loan payment then you know, if they have the same amount of debt and they're making the same amount of money and one of them gets income applies and gets income based payment, are they like getting free money or what is actually happening? Well, they're just, applying for a certain benefit that anyone could apply for. When you go into income-based repayment, you're still, it doesn't lower your interest rate. You're still paying the same interest rate. Right. Yes. Okay. You're just making smaller payments. And then what happens to, what happens to your balance? So there's different kinds of programs, but there's something that, uh, you know, different programs where your payments will not exceed 10 years. Or your payments will, you know, after 10 years, the remainder of the payment payments will be forgiven. There's different kinds of programs out there. So it's just important for people who have student loans to really explore all their options to make sure that they're taking advantage. Because, you know, if you work for the government, you have more kind of more of a opportunity to have your student loans be more manageable than the average person. Sure, because those are those are forgiveness programs, right? Where right. if you make 120 monthly payments, uh, if you're in income-based repayment and you make 120 payments, then there's a program that's going to allow you to forgive that federal yes. debt, right? 
Right. But what happens if you don't qualify for the forgiveness? I mean, if you're in income-based, let's say you're in income-based repayment. Mm-hmm. What's your balance say at the end of the year? You've been in income-based repayment. You've been making the payments, but you're in income-based repayment. What what happens to your principal? What happens to your balance at the end of the year? At the end of the year, or you mean at the end of? At the end of one year, before you get it, you know you're going to get it forgiven ten years from now. But what uh-huh. does the balance look like this year, or next year, or the year after that? What's going on with the principal on that loan? Well, the principal stays. Well. I believe the principal stays the principal. You're saying, do you pay? Are you trying to ask me if you pay tax? You pay interest on the full principal? Well, yeah, because you're still you're still paying interest on the amount you owe, right? Yes. Okay, but now your your loan payment because it's been adjusted. Your loan payment has been adjusted downward to reflect the fact that you can't pay more. Mm-hmm. But don't people actually have? principal that's going up like they're making payments but the principal is actually oh, going yeah. up it is it does yes okay and then it's just a band-aid i mean it's a band-aid really right okay so they they owe you know let's say they owe one hundred and fifty thousand dollars when they get out of school mm-hmm. law school that would be a decent number to owe when you get out of law school is one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. i mean i know people who owe a lot more than that you, if you're an income-based repayment, after five years, you might owe, you might make the payments, right? For five years, you might make the payments if you're an income-based repayment. And now your principal might be more. It might be $160,000, $170,000. Is that, is that right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so then there is this growing incentive for you to stay in the program and to try to get everything forgiven at, at the end of 10 years. And then magically, it all goes away on the federal loans. Yes, if you if you make all the payments. If you make all the payments and if you don't make too much money to disqualify you from the program. It, right, yes. Cool. Uh, any particularly interesting stories about student debt that you would like to share with the audience? I would love to. Uh, so I have a couple of different stories. Um, one story is, uh, a client who I believe he went to ITT Tech or one of those online type schools. Okay, yeah. And uh, he couldn't actually get a job in the field that he studied, but ended up getting a job with the government, which actually is, you know, good. However, his student loans were still unmanageable. So we recently had to file a Chapter 13 because they started garnishing his paycheck. So back in the day, when I was practicing, let's say, 2008 to 2011, the creditors, especially the student loan creditors, were not as aggressive. They're getting a lot more aggressive, and they are suing people and garnishing wages. So this is something that I didn't really see in 2008 to 2011, but I'm seeing a lot more now, the student lenders garnishing and suing people. Okay, so garnishing is you haven't made the payments that you're supposed to make and now they actually come and do they have to get a judgment on to, to do that or what, how does that go down? Yes. So they have to sue and get a judgment. So let's say for this client who his student loans are private, he can't do the income based repayment. Okay. Because it's not, that's only for federal loans. Right. So he's stuck with these student loans and the good thing about, Filing a 13 is that 
let's say you have student loans that are just out of control. We, what we do in a 13 is we can file file the case and propose that you pay zero. Okay. So even though you're you're thinking, okay, but your interest is accruing, sometimes these people cannot even afford to pay their student loans at all. They have other expenses. They have kids. They have, you know, they're not working. So this is just a way to just stop the enforcement of the judgments against them and to just give them some breathing room to be able to take care of other matters until they're able to either have the income to start making payments again, but at least this way they're protected by the bankruptcy. Okay, because otherwise the garnishment would actually just take money out of their paycheck. Like, yeah. no, you're paying us because right. you're, you're not even going to ever put your hands on the money. It's going to come straight to us. They would, Yeah, they could garnish up to 25% of your gross income. Wow. Okay. So this is like new uh, sort of developing law. Would you say that? that? I don't know if I would say it's new developing. It's just more of a strategy that I've been using recently because for, for clients who don't really have any other options, to be honest. Okay. Yeah. All right. I mean, I'm in the business of trying to keep people out of this situation, but um, yeah. there are, so there are now some solutions, but I mean, this is not a, this is not a fix, right? No, it's, it's, it's not a fix. However, what I'll tell you is as a lawyer, we always use the delay tactics. And even though delay tactics are, a del- you know, it's just to buy time, sometimes time buys you what you need. So we don't know what the laws are going to be. We don't know which, you know, Navian, it has just been sued recently for not giving people the opportunity to do income-based repayments or, you know, not, they're, they're being sued by the Consumer Protection, the CFPB. There's a pending lawsuit against them. Okay. So we, we basically, what we do is we buy time to see what's going to happen. You know, maybe Navient will file bankruptcy. Who knows? The law changes somehow these there's some big student loan forgiveness plan that comes down the pipe that you never anticipated exactly okay so so buying time is always useful even though this you know this debt is still out there for my clients we're doing whatever we can and that's really all we can do there there are ways to get rid of student loans through bankruptcy as well which are called a non-dischargeability action but those are very expensive and a lot of people just can't even afford the attorney's fees to come up with them. Like the people who need it the most, right. the people who have the most, you know, dire circumstances, they can't even come up with the money because they basically have to sue the student lender. So it's basically a lawsuit. But it's hard to come up with the attorney's fees when you are a quarter of a million dollars into student yes. debt. Right. Awesome. If someone wants to learn more about, about you or get in touch, where should they go? They can go to my website, which is www.ganunilaw.com. They can give me a call at 213-444-3328, or they can just send me an email. Ganuni is G-H-A-N-O-O-N-I? Yes. Ganunilaw.com? Anything else that you would like to talk about today before I let you go? I don't want to take up your whole evening. You probably, wait, let me guess. You got work to do. You're a lawyer. (laughs) I think I'm going to take the rest of the night off. Okay. Fantastic. I don't know if I gave you my email address. Oh, yeah. You can give out the email if you want. 
Yeah, so it's Eliza, E-L-I-Z-A, at ganunilaw.com. That's G-H-A-N-O-O-N-I-L-A-W dot C-O-M. Great. And any any last words for the for the audience? I know you're really happy about Loyola. Is there anybody at Loyola or anything they should particularly check out at Loyola? If they're interested in applying, they, they can take a tour. They can, I think if they just reach out to the admissions office. Sure, to take a tour of uh, classes or whatever. We, we definitely recommend that people do that on the regular basis. Yeah, I, sure. I think that my, my piece of advice would just be that if you're applying to law school or if you're looking to go to law school, you just have to know that it's a long journey. And if you're not going to get a scholarship, it's not going to be cheap. But I don't regret it for a day. I'll, I'll admit it was hard when I first graduated. I was not happy about my student loans. But I think that looking back, I would do it over again, the same exact, I would go to Loyola and I would do it all over again. So I think that it just really depends on if you're enjoying what you're doing. And if you, you know, you're being true to yourself and doing what you're passionate about. I think if you're doing what you're passionate about, that you'll enjoy it and it'll be worth it. That's a very nice, positive note. Ben and I on the show frequently are giving some negative perspectives about law school. So it's nice to have somebody on who who says they would do it all again. Where do you go from here, Eliza? What's your, do you have a plan for your firm? Are you going to hire people? Are you going to take over the world? What are you going to do? For now, I am going to just see how the market goes. Bankruptcy is not as busy as it used to be, but I'm doing other kinds of work in debt settlement, just helping people settle lawsuits and settle debts instead of filing bankruptcy. I also want to get more involved in uh, real estate work. There's so many opportunities out there to help people and there's always things to learn and new areas of law. So I think that I'm doing what I enjoy right now and I'm just going to continue doing it and getting involved in other fields also. Fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Eliza Ganuni is a consumer bankruptcy attorney at Ganuni Law Firm in Los Angeles. Uh, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it was great. <laughs>